tired today. Actually, I'm crabby today because it is snowing again. Who ordered the snow? Who ordered it? Solon, I'm going to talk to you after church. I'm just, I'm just over it. The gray and the mush of late winter, it just, it just presses in on me. Gravity seems heavier. If I could... I would take a nap each day just to escape having to look at that. And none of these 20-minute cat naps, no, that's for amateurs. And I turned pro in napping a long time ago. So I want a nice, soft blanket, a couple of snoozing dogs, and an uninterrupted afternoon. Because if it's less than three hours, it's not a nap. You gotta have the whole afternoon. So, is, is anyone else tired? A little bit. Is anyone else crabby with the snow? Yeah. Does anyone else feel just the gray and the mush just pressing in on you? <laughs> Mavis Staples. That's who we just heard singing. She expresses that weariness, that exhaustion, when it seems like just way too much to take another step. In her voice, we hear the honesty of confession. I'm tired. I'm lonely. I've lost my way. I can see in my mind's eye a frustrated driver on the side of the road staring down at an engine that won't start up again. It's an empty road. There's no one coming along to help. The driver heaves a great sigh and closes the hood, looks up at the night sky, and wonders... Somehow, grace. It's a word that many of us have probably heard many times before. Grace. The undeserved favor of God, freely given to us. God doesn't have to welcome us. God doesn't have to save us or be with us, or love us. Nobody can require God to do anything, because God is God, who's going to boss God around, even though we try. No one can require God to do these things, but God does each of them, loves us, saves us, chooses to be with us, because God wants to. 
God chooses to. God meets us with grace. That's got me pondering a question. One that you can start pondering with me as we turn together to Psalm 25. My question is this. If God meets us with grace, how do we meet God in return? We'll be looking at the first ten verses of Psalm 25, which is the fourth track of our road trip playlist. And as you are able, I invite you to stand in honor of the reading of Scripture. If you don't have a physical Bible or a Bible on your phone today, the words will be on the screen so you will not be left out. We'll be looking at the first ten verses. Psalm 25, 1 through 10. Hear the word of the Lord. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Do not let me be put to shame. Do not let my enemies exult over me. Do not let those who wait for you be put to shame. Let them be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all day long. Of your mercy, O Lord, and of your steadfast love, for they have been from old. Do not remember the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me, for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord, therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his decrees. This is the word of God for the people of God, and we say together, please be seated. So you might notice at the top of this psalm that there's this little of David. Not, not every Bible has it, but most do. It just says this little of David up at the top. Now, this can mean one of two things. Either a man named David wrote this psalm, surprise, or someone who was inspired by a man named David and wrote in his style, wrote this psalm. So it's either a man named David or someone who thought David was super cool. Now, either way, we remember that it is God who begins the conversation. The human authors of the Psalms are responding to God. And God speaks in, around, behind, and through their words. The preservation of this Psalm in the collection, whoever wrote it, indicates that God has something to say to us. We wouldn't, we wouldn't have this if God didn't want us to have it. So God has something to teach us through the human wrestlings and experiences of the author. But who is this man named David? Why, why does he matter? Why would someone want to write in a style like his? 
Well, David's story is told in the books of First and Second Samuel, which is just a little chunk back in your Bible. David is born at a really chaotic time in the history of ancient Israel. They are in the middle of transitioning from this form of government that's really localized and occasionally is united around one leader, especially in a time of crisis. They're transitioning from this and into a monarchy. Now, Israel's not supposed to have a monarchy. They're supposed to look to and follow God as their king. But instead, they want to be like everybody else around them, which I feel like we shouldn't judge them too harshly for because we've all been there. And God, in God's grace, continues to work with them and be with them, even though they've decided that they want this king that they weren't supposed to have. Now, David is the youngest of several sons born to a woman whose name we don't know, a woman married to a man named Jesse. Now, Jesse has a lot of animals, a lot of sheep and all those kind of stuff, but not pigs, never pigs in Israel. So David's first job is that of a shepherd. He's out taking care of the sheep. And one day, he leaves the field with the sheep, and he faces off with this man you may have heard of, this man named Goliath. And he brings Goliath down with just a sling and a few smooth stones. Really, it's his faith in God that brings the giant down. And out of this great victory, David advances in the ranks of the military, but he's also a poet and a musician. He's kind of a renaissance man. He does a little bit of everything. He's marked by God as Israel's next king, following the bad choices of Saul, the first king of Israel. And when Saul finds out about this, he's already not exactly in his right mind. He's a little, little off. And so David becomes his number one enemy. He tries to murder David several times, even at the dinner table. He just kind of picks up a uh, spear, not sword, picks up a spear and just, just chucks it at him. Remember that the next time you're around family for Thanksgiving. It could be a lot worse. And Saul is just obsessed with David, and he chases David through the wilderness. And all the while, David is gathering all of these supporters. And Saul is just trying to get him but he fails. And so David eventually ascends to the throne of Israel. He's the king. And he's known as a man after God's own heart, or a man loyal to the Lord. David loves God. David wants to please God. And... David is a liar. He's an adulterer. He's a murderer. So he's complicated. David is a complicated guy. And he leaves behind a complicated legacy. 
And I actually think that this complexity may be partly why others wanted to write in his style. Because he's so human. He's like the most human of humans. He loves God and he falls to temptation. Again and again, David has to seek forgiveness. He has to learn to love God more today than he did yesterday so he doesn't fall into the same trap again. David has to learn to give himself more fully to God each day. He has to get going again by grace. We see the ups and downs and the mess of this process in this psalm. There's actually no overall logic to it. There's no unified design. It's just kind of all over the place and bouncing around. There's not a single theme that you can trace through the stanzas of this poem. So it's like the author themselves, whether it's David or a person writing like David, is having some complicated feelings, complicated thoughts, a little mixed up, just trying to get the thoughts out, but can't, can't quite land on the right words. Again, just kind of all over the place. A little tired. A little lonely. A little lost. What intrigues me most about this psalm is that the shaky and scattered weariness of the author is contrasted with the presence of the solid God. Do you ever think about God's solidness? I think it, it can be kind of hard because God is spirit. We can't see God. You know, you can't put God into like an iced tea pitcher and measure God. So how is God, how is God solid? Well, there's a Hebrew word that helps us out in understanding that. And that word is kabod. And it's translated as glory in our Bibles as it should be. It talks about the glory of God. But one of the meanings of kabod is great weight. So the gray and the mush presses in on us, but then God also presses in on us. It's one weight displaced by another. The weight of distractions and tiredness and loneliness overtaken by the weight of God's love and grace. And the psalmist talks about this solid God right at the outset. They declare their allegiance to the solid God. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. Lifting up the soul is a way of saying, I am all in. I'm going to center my whole entire self on God, the only God, the true God, the solid God. 
author searches for words to explain what they're feeling and what they're going through. But more importantly, even if it's done through gritted teeth and with sweat dripping off of their foreheads from the effort of choosing to ignore the lure of all distractions, they are focusing all of their affection and attention on God. Now let's remember for a moment that the musical themes that tie this whole road trip playlist together are praise and fear, which is reverence and respect and awe. Praise and fear rightly given to God. This is how we're supposed to respond to God. And this author expands on this theme by reminding us in verse 10 that all the ways of the Lord are loving and faithful. God does not steer us in dangerous, harmful directions. The fulfillment, the safety, the roadmap through life that we long for is found in loving obedience to God, in relationship. human, and we don't automatically know this, we aren't born with a desire to follow God's roadmap. In fact, over in Romans chapter 1, the Apostle Paul tells us that we are born actively suppressing within our minds the knowledge of God and our need for God. We want to do our own thing. And it's not until We cry out to God, which we do by God's grace, because we can't choose to do that ourselves. It's not until we cry out for forgiveness, for rescue, that we start to get it. We start to see how destructive our way is, and we begin to long for a better way. And it's a way that we have to learn why the psalmist asks God to teach them, to lead them. If we want to follow God, then God has to teach us how to do so. It's not intuitive for us. Everyone has to learn from God how to go in God's way. God sets the agenda and defines the boundaries. And God communicates this teaches this primarily through scripture, but also in nature, in music, in prayer, in the sacraments, and the holy relationships that we have with each other. Now when I say that God has to teach us, I don't mean that we're demanding this of God, because remember, no one can require God to do anything. I mean that we are literally incapable of finding or understanding God's roadmap without God's help. The fact that God takes the time to teach us is a sign of God's great goodness, God's solidness. God could leave us on our own. God could 
sit back and watch as we try to figure it out. But God doesn't. God wants us to understand. And that brings us back to David and his complicated legacy. And the person who may be writing in his style or with his story in mind. Verse 7. Do not remember the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Now, sins here equal mistakes, actions of ignorance, things that go wrong despite your best intentions. Transgressions equal willful actions. The things that you know are wrong, but you do them anyway because you want to. And the author pleads with God, begging God to not remember those things, to forgive. But the author doesn't downplay the seriousness of this. The author doesn't try to justify or rationalize or explain David we're talking about is things like adultery and murder. Like it's starkly awful stuff. But even if it's not David, even if the sins are, are smaller or more explainable from a human perspective, the author doesn't make excuses. The author is humble. And that answers our question, how are we to meet the God who meets us with grace? With humility. And what does it mean to be humble? Is it self-hate? No. And that's one I've struggled with, believe me. But to be humble is just to be honest. It's to have a correct view of yourself and the situation. Pastor Billy explored this some a couple weeks ago when he talked about being grateful to God and recognizing that we don't own or control anything, that it all belongs to God and we take care of what God gives us, whether it's a lot or a little. To be humble is to pause and say again, God is God. I am not. And we want to be people of humility because we see in this psalm that God empowers humble people to walk in God's way, to travel God's roadmap in the way that God wants us to. The solid God pulls us away from the heavy gray and mush that threaten to pull us down and sets our feet on a well-paved path of freedom and wholeness. Now, there's a good chance that we know this. Like, if, if you've even been in church twice, this is pretty familiar ground. Uh-huh, yep, yep. God's the way out. God's the way forward. Yep, sure thing. I'm on board. 
our trouble can be less in accepting that reality in our heads than in actually living it out. You know that really long journey from your brain to your heart? From knowing that something is true to actually behaving in the ways that that truth leads you to? Our trouble lies in us not being humble. And so God's grace, rather than something that we cherish, something that we're so grateful for, becomes just just a thing to fall back on. Rather than the real, solid God being our foundation, rather than grace enveloping and transforming us, We try to have a trampoline God, one that we can stick with long enough to get forgiven and then bounce off to keep doing whatever it is that we want to do. And that's called cheap grace. In his book, The Cost of Discipleship, pastor and theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer, writing and ministering in the midst of Nazi Germany, tells us that cheap grace is the deadly enemy of our church. And this is what we mean by cheap grace. The justification of sin without the justification of the repentant sinner who departs from sin and from whom sin departs. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, which isn't just asking God for forgiveness and why you plan to do the same thing again. It's asking God to forgive and to change you. It's turning from that sin and toward God. Cheap grace. And for us in our tradition, I think that grace becomes cheap when we kind of tip this idea of holiness on its side and put ourselves in the center and start focusing in on how good we are instead of how great God is. We can start to think, well, I've been saved and sanctified since 1829. I don't need to ask for forgiveness for anything. I'm good. It becomes about us about our ability to keep on the right side of the list of don'ts rather than remaining about the goodness and the majesty and the wonder of God. Now hear me super clearly. God does set us free. God does make us whole. God does give us the power to live as God wants us to. It's entirely possible to enter this room today with no, like, known sin. Like, you managed to not cut off the driver on the freeway. God bless you. That's possible. God gives you the power to obey and live in the way that God wants you to. We can be holy people because of God's work in our lives. But God doesn't do this so we can start thinking, how awesome am I? which is what happens when we tip this idea of holiness on its side and put ourselves at the center. God needs to be at the center. And our thought needs to be, how awesome is God? 
confessing that God forgives me. I want to know and love God more today than I did yesterday. Drop down to verse 16 with me. The psalmist writes, Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. Do you see the humility there? The desire for God to enter in and to rescue, to transform the entirety of the psalmist. There's something that Pastor Tawny touched on last week. We need God. And no matter how long we've known God, the need does not diminish. There is always gray and mush and just ridiculous late winter. There's always a clanking engine. There's always the danger of cliff sides and the annoying sounds of rumble strips. We have to choose humility. More than that, we have to ask God to teach us how to be humble and how to stay humble because it's not natural to us. We can't ever be thinking that we somehow need God less today than we did yesterday. Because holiness isn't about performance. It's about sticking close to God in humble devotion. This is the first Sunday in Lent, which is a season that we remember that grace is costly. Grace costs Jesus everything. We don't get to take that for granted. We don't get to be flippant about it. Instead, we have the privilege of joining in with the psalmist. We get to reach out to God with those same outstretched hands. We get to make that gesture of humble dependence. Everything we are and everything we do, we owe to the stability of the solid God, the gracious So we must not abuse the grace of the solid God. We must not take this grace for granted. And at the same time, we are confident that when we are tired, lonely, or lose our way, God will meet us with grace, just as God did for the psalmist. We can cry out to God for help, for forgiveness. The weight of the gray and the mush will be displaced by the weight of the God who loves us. I'm going to invite those who are participating in serving communion today. I'm going to invite you forward along with uh, our band. And uh, today, we get to experience one of the ways that God meets us with grace through the sacrament or the sacred moment of communion. And it's a moment in which we declare our dependence upon God. As we look back to the sacrifice of Christ on the cross and forward to Christ's return. We'll join in this
this sacred moment together. So please hold on to the bread and the juice until everyone has received them, at which point I will guide us through this moment. And as the servers prepare to distribute the elements, let me share words with you that are not mine, but aid us in entering into this moment with humility. This is the table, not of the church, but of the Lord. It's made ready for those who love God and for those who want to love God. So welcome, you who have much faith and you who have little. You who have been here often and you who have not been here long. You who have followed the road.